Hey up. Bye bye. We're back. Welcome to episode 14, your favourite Yorkshire couple, Carla and Phil. How's everyone doing? Favourite's a bit strong actually, isn't it? Because Yeah, fucking hell. <laughs> oh, never mind. It, it feels like we've it's been ages since we've recorded. Yeah, it, it does to me. We had a bit of issues with us. Family life, which meant that um, as last episode got postponed, but we're not perfect. We no. don't claim to be. This podcast ain't perfect. At all. Yeah, and that's just how we do it. Well, we said right from the beginning, you know, as family comes first, so podcast kind of got put on back burner for a week, didn't it? Yeah. It's been nice weather. It has. Do you know, I've got to admit, kids have just had half term, haven't they? Yeah. And it has got to be probably the best half term they've had. Obviously, they've had a lot of time off. Since pre-lockdown. Yeah. The weather's been beautiful. Been able to cut at seaside. We've been to, yeah, we did. We've been to the seaside. We had a day at Whitby. As kids, like eldest, it, it, it's proper took me back to my childhood this week as that lad. He's spent all week over at Emsworth Water Park, hasn't he? Yeah. With his mates. Not bothered about going to seaside, seaside with, with mum and dad. No, not at all. Cost us a bloody fortune is what he's done. <laughs> but he, he's, had a, he's had a really good week. Um, tell you wise, we've... Uh, we watched Friday Night Dinner documentary. Oh, we did. That was sad. We're big fans of Friday Night Dinner. If you haven't watched it, please. It's definitely worth a watch. Yeah. That was sad. It, it, it was sad, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, because um, to see. the actor Paul Ritter has passed away. Uh, you said he were a brain tumour, didn't you? Yeah, I read that he, he'd got a brain tumour and he became really, really unwell. And I also read that they weren't going to put the documentary out. Yeah. Um. In fact, the the lady that plays his wife, she said to him, "Oh, don't you don't have to do this," but apparently he really wanted to. And he's my favourite character. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Females. Watch it if you haven't watched it. Uh, then we watched Friends documentary. Yeah, I was really disappointed. I've got to admit, I was a bit disappointed. I wasn't disappointed. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what for what it was. Also. And Maid's Tale. Oh, oh. <laughs> God, that... We had a day, didn't we? Yeah. We, we literally said, you know what? We're, we're not doing nothing. We're not going anywhere. We're not seeing anybody. We're going to just have a day catching up. And we, I'd said earlier on in the week that it felt like it's been ages since me and you have just got that into a series yeah. that we binge it through day. Yeah, and we've just chilled out through day. Yeah. I think last series that we did that together was Kingdom. Yeah. Which were a, a long time ago now. Watch Kingdom as well. Yeah, that's a really good one. Uh, it's, a, it's a series about an MMA gym, but it's so yeah, much just, more. Ju- yeah, because just remember, when I thought it was just a, no, it's something on MMA, it didn't interest me. But you haven't got a good record for having good tasting series, have you? Yeah, mate. No. If you're listening, which I know you will be, I got you, mate. I Fuck got you. Off. We'll not go into that. So, but you did make it sound shit, but it's not. It is really fucking, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, lastly, Mayor of Easttown. That is definitely worth a watch. Sky Atlantic, Kate Winslet. She's done a few now. Yeah. And we've enjoyed. It's a bit of a slow burner, I would say. Yeah. But yeah. it is brilliant. The the last few episodes are the best. Yeah. But we enjoyed that, didn't we? Yeah. Um, 
to be fair, we've not watched much into. We watched a film called I Am All Girls. Yeah, on Netflix, and that will loosely. Well, it was based around a true story with obviously some yeah. fiction put in there. Um, it were human trafficking. Yeah, that that were. I enjoyed it. So another recommendation for yous. It is, and if anybody right wants to ask me over message, oh, what was that thing you recommended on your episode? Steph, please at least know what episode. That girl had me going back how many? Six <laughs> to find out. So I hope it will worth it for her. Um, I'm first Yeah. this week. Now, this case was a request from Johnny, my friend. Shout out. Whoop. Um, I'd never heard of this guy. I asked you if you'd heard of this guy and you said no. It always shocks me like i know there's that many cases out there that i've never heard of you can't possibly know them all no you can't but when there's a case that i've dug into this week that you've not heard about that shocks me because this guy he weren't the worst but in terms of things progressing i'd have definitely thought it had been an up there popular case Mm -hmm. but it wasn't. So I'm going to speak to you about Michael Bruce Ross, who was later named the Roadside Strangler. Um, apparently he got that name. It weren't actually given to him via the media or out like that. It was, it, His case featured on a documentary programme and all the other cases on that episode all had nicknames. Right. So the producers decided that he needed a nickname. Right. So then he was called the Roadside Strangler. So Michael Ross was born on the 26th of July in 1959 to his parents, Patricia and Daniel Ross. Now, them two didn't have a stable marriage at all. It weren't good. They basically found out she was pregnant pretty young. I think she was just leaving school. The best thing to do in them days were get get married. That's what they did. Now, they lived out on a farm. It were a working farm in Brooklyn, in Connecticut. <laughs> His mum, Pat, she fucking hated it. She hated everything about farm life. She hated everything that came with it. She didn't want to be a mum. She weren't. She, she didn't have a maternal bone in her at all. Now, it is said that she was borderline schizophrenic, so she did struggle with her mental health quite a lot. So... All that added together with a mental health were a really shit environment for kids. They had four children and Michael were eldest. Now, she did end up and leaving them all and she went to North Carolina with a new man. It didn't last very long and she ended up coming back. But she was then hospitalised because of her mental health and she was put into an institution. It While she was there, her psychiatrist reported that She'd often talk about wanting to hurt the kids, physically and mentally. Patricia definitely used a lot of mental abuse on kids. She'd, because they worked on a farm, uh, lived on a farm, sorry, she would feed them raw meat that had gone off. Obviously that would make them poorly, but she didn't take care of them, she didn't look after them, she'd sit and laugh at them. Now she would purposely like ruin the clothes, just awful things so they got bullied which then 
in turn met their mate like they didn't go like going to school they just got picked on all the time and the dad didn't interject at no, all no 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 so they all suffered with you know from the mum's mental abuse there's not a lot documented if any of that abuse were physical but one of michael's sisters did say that he definitely was the scapegoat he got the majority of all his mum's aggression and anger and everything else. It's funny how it's always one, isn't it? Yeah, and I probably would think that Michael was blamed for how her life turned out. Yeah. You know, the fact that she only married this man because she dropped on pregnant with him. Yeah. She hated the farm life. So he probably got all that because she blamed him. Michael were a bedwetter. Quite severe bedwetter, well into his early teens. Every time he wet the bed, she'd make him hang his sheets out of his bedroom window, so everyone, everyone could, see. could see. It was just a public. It, it were a way to publicly embarrass him, wasn't it, and humiliate him. At one point, she also tried to convince him to kill his pet dog. She tried telling him that his dog had a disease and that it was going to spread to him, and it were either him or the dog. He didn't actually kill his dog, but she did try. So all this, you can imagine that he didn't have a great childhood. It took a toll. Yeah, it was pretty shit, wasn't it? Michael did say that he couldn't remember much of it, but what he does remember is how much he loved working on the farm with his dad. And it's also documented that Michael was sexually abused by his younger uncle, who lived with them and worked on the farm with them. But when... Michael accused him, he committed suicide. So nothing ever came of it, you know, he killed himself. Now, because he committed suicide, they needed an extra pair of hands on the farm. So that's when Michael started working on the farm with his dad, basically took over jobs that his uncle would do, which included killing the chickens mm -hmm. using his bare hands. It was only eight. Fucking hell. Eight year old. But... That's like our Travis. I know. That's crazy to think, isn't it? Yeah. That this this boy of that size were, were having to use his bare hands to strangle... Travis is his youngest son, by the way. Yeah. To strangle a chicken. Yeah, that's fucked up, that. But he's at, it actually does say that he really fucking enjoyed this. And as he got older, he just got more and more into farm life. When he started going to high school, he really wasn't sociable at all. It weren't because he had a low IQ or anything like that, because he actually had an IQ of 122. So he was, you know, not just an average Joe IQ. It was the fact that he had no sort of desire to socialise with people and yeah. he just wanted to be on farm, I think. Now, later on, when interviewed, Michael said this is when he started getting these urges to stalk girls. He'd just seek them out, stalk them. But he said he got sexual gratification from the from the fear, he'd make it known that he were following these girls. So when they were scared, that's what he got off on. Do you know what I think that is? Because he feared his mum. So then he's putting himself in a situation where he is to be feared. For first time, yeah. probably in his life. And that's probably what's getting his rocks off. Yeah, possibly. Not that I'm a fucking psychiatrist, psychologist. <laughs> yeah, no, but it makes sense though, doesn't it? So, in 1977, Michael started at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. 
and he was studying agriculture. His plan apparently was to sail through uni, graduate and then continue running the family farm. When he started uni, apparently he went balls deep and he just started drinking, experimenting with drugs, sleeping around, just doing what the rest of the were all doing probably. <laughs> but he'd never done it, had he? Let's be honest, he, he weren't a very sociable person. And people that did knew him... probably thought, well, this is fucking fun. <laughs> this is new. Um, people that did know him described him as a bit of a loner. And he actually were... He could be really arrogant at times. It were around that time that Michael met a girl called Connie. And Connie turned out to be this, um, like, his true love. He'd never experienced somebody loving him like she loved him so he were cl- he were clutching onto that for day fucking life they moved in together and connie found out she were pregnant she decided it weren't for her she really wanted to do finish uni so she chose to have an abortion michael just shit started to hit fan for him because after she'd done that he became really aggressive towards her um, he were drinking a lot verbally vile with how he'd speak to her just just not a nice person but connie actually said to him i'm not putting up with your shit i'm not dealing with it Good for her. um so michael again from interviews there's lots on this man there's been documentaries with him doing interviews so it's all it's out available. there he actually said that it was half it were after this period that things went wrong with him and connie that he started getting these really strong sexual fantasies and they just kept getting stronger but they were getting more aggressive as well. So in April 1981, he were out walking around campus and he decided to grab a girl. He dragged her out of view and he raped her and then he let her go. Three days later, he did exactly the same again. He dragged her out of view, but he didn't actually rape her because he got disturbed and he got spooked, so he ran off. Michael actually said that once he'd left uni, he believed that all these sexual fantasies had disappear and had vanish and his life had go back to normal working on this farm. Yeah. But it could only make him disappear if he dis- if he went out and fulfilled it. So, of course, that's what he, he did. And on the 12th of May in 1981, he followed a girl called Zung Tu. I don't know if it's Zung Tu or Zung Tui, so I, I apologise. But they were in a night class together. He decided to follow her out, stalked for a little bit. He then pulled her to a secluded area and raped her. But this time, she told him that she knew who he was and everyone's going to know what he's done. So the only thing he could do was kill her. So he strangled her. He actually thought she were dead, so he threw her over a bridge into a lake. But when autopsy came out, she were actually alive and she ended up dying from drowning. So that girl could have actually, you know, if he'd have just left her there, she'd have been found, wouldn't she? So at this point, Michael's just finishing uni. He's been offered a job in North Carolina and he's still trying to win Connie back. So he's trying to convince her to go with him. Um, promising at world everything but she said no it's not going to happen so to him his world were ending everything were falling apart his life wasn't turning out like it were gonna he found out that his share of the farm had been sold so he didn't even have his farm life to look forward to connie had obviously washed her hands of him so everything had gone to shit he decided to go back home to brooklyn connecticut and as he's driving he finds a girl that he decides to stalk and he said this time it were different. It weren't about the sexual fantasies anymore. He said that that girl was more out of frustration. He actually beat her, like severely beat her. Um, because his world were falling apart. Yeah. 
Not that it gives him fucking right to do anything. No, he shouldn't have fucking laid his hands yeah. on anybody. But no, he, um, yeah, Fir- first and only one that he really, really, like, violently assaulted like that. Obviously, he raped them and stuff, but that girl would really be. So, in September of 1981, Michael had travelled to Chicago, um, like, on a work thing. <laughs> Again, he found a 17-year-old girl that he followed. He grabbed her. But as he's grabbed her, a neighbour saw him, so they rang the police. The police came and they actually caught him and he got arrested. He was charged, he pled guilty and he was given a $500 fine and told that he'd later have to go back to court. So he left Chicago, went back home. It was nearly Christmas. He was spending it at home. He thought that... He were going to go back home and have this nice Christmas, family Christmas with his siblings, his mum and dad and whatever else. But it didn't happen like that. Not that it justifies, but I find it interesting in all the research I've done. There always seems to be something that happens that triggers the next event. Do you know what I mean? He seems to, when, when settled and happy in life, he sails through. But it's when that triggers there. That's I found that quite interesting with him. So he'd had a really shit Christmas and it's January the 4th, 1982. And there's a 17-year-old girl called Tammy Lee Williams. She was walking home from her boyfriend's home and Michael spotted her as he was driving past. Of course, he pulled over, offered her a lift, but she said, no, thank you. But he decided to drag her into nearby woods, rape and strangle her. He covered her body with leaves and rocks and left her there. Then in the May of that year, Pamela, who was 16, again, walking alone, Michael spotted her, offered her a lift, but she also turned it down. But he then also dragged her to the side of the road, raped her and strangled her and left her body there. 15th of June, 23-year-old Deborah was driving home with her husband they ran out of fuel. A police officer had picked them up and drove them to the nearest garage. At some point, she started arguing with her husband. She said she'd make her own way home, and off she went. And unfortunately, she accepted a lift from Michael. Fuck it. She wasn't seen again until her body was then found in the October. So her poor husband, last time he spoke to her, they argued. Awful. Yeah. Awful. Now... He obviously were arrested and charged in Chicago. So in the August, he had to go back for his sentencing. He was given six months and another $1,000 fine. So he was locked up and he was released in December of 1982. Michael decided to move to Norwich in Connecticut where he got into a relationship with a lady called Deborah who was a single mum to three children. Now... During this relationship with Deborah, he raped another girl, but he didn't kill her. He let her go. And I couldn't find a name because I think she was young. Right. Um, so I'm now taking you to the 16th of November, 1983. There's a 19-year-old girl called Robin, and she's walking home from her boyfriend's house. Michael saw her, offered her a lift. She turned him down. But again, that didn't matter to Michael. He grabbed her, raped her, and strangled her to death. 22nd of April 1984, 14-year-old April and Leslie 
had been to cinema together. They were best friends. Instead of ringing the parents to pick them up when they'd finished, they decided they were going to walk home. Michael pulled over, offered him a lift. Of course he fucking did. Yeah. Why wouldn't he? Which they accepted. Michael said in an interview, as he drove um, across Rhode Island border, one of the girls actually pulled a knife on him. Um, but I don't know, I don't, he don't say, he never said how he stopped her. He just said he freaked out, which he thought scared them. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, you know, she could have... And these girls were... obviously walk, overpowered her. Yeah, you know, they, they were 14. Yeah. I don't think they were much... I bet she was shitting herself. Um, but he started freaking out and he scared them to the point where they both just complied with everything that he asked of them. He put Leslie in boo while he took April. He raped and killed her. Sick bastard. Now, Leslie is the only one of his eight murder victims that he didn't rape. And in an interview, he later said that Leslie was just too young. She didn't fit his fantasies. But he couldn't let her go either, so... He killed her. He killed her. 15th of June, 1984, Wendy, who was 17, was walking to the shop. Now, eyewitnesses say that there was a man in a smart suit following her, and that was the last sightings of Wendy. By this point, the police had started connecting these rapes and murders. You know, these girls were just turning up dead. And they'd started making some connections... Every single um, witness reported the same, the same, you know, same car being used in each different um, victim, same motive. So the police decide that they're going to start looking for this car in particular, and they're going to use database to find anybody registered of owning one. Eventually, Michael's name came up to owning this car. Um, so on the twenty fourth of June, nineteen eighty four, this was a few weeks after Wendy was murdered. Police officer Mike Malchek went to Michael's house to basically ask him some questions. At first, he just seemed like a typical normal lad next door and there were nothing about him that was suspicious at all. Um, it weren't until he were walking out and he just random, you know, casually asked, what, what did you do on 15th of June? And he said that the detailed account of Michael's day to him were just... Something had happened on that day for it to be so memorable for him. Um, the only thing he did is he changed timings, which created an alibi. So he weren't Anywhere about yeah, when Wendy was taken. But like I said, Mike said that he thought it was strange. So he actually said to him, do you mind coming in and just answering a few questions down at station? Um, Michael actually said to him, no, that sounds like fun. And got him, please car. Come on then, cop. <laughs> so... They went to the police station and they asked him a few questions. And when they'd finished, Michael just asked them straight, do you think I killed Wendy? So the officers turned round and said, yeah, we do. He sat and admitted to 11 rapes and seven of the eight murders. And two of which the police had not even connected to him, to him in any way, shape or form. Um, the officers said that they, were, they did not expect it at all because they didn't really have any, there were nothing to link him yeah they had all they had is that he what the registered owner of a car that was similar to what had been at scene 
And really, if you think about it... He could have got away with it. This might be taking it a bit too far, but if that copper ant has stopped and said, hmm, what were you doing at 15? Yeah, he'd have walked off. And if that copper didn't ask, can you come down to the station? And he said, nah. He didn't have to go. No. He didn't have to willingly get in that car. Other people might have died. Well, they did say that, um, you know, at no point did he try to make up false alibis or anything he apart just from on doorstep yeah apart from just changing his timings yeah. which gave him an alibi but like he didn't sit there and deny anything he just told him everything everything um but he did only he did seven murders not eight but he, he was nearly there wasn't <laughs> he um so on the 13th of december 1986 michael was convicted of two murders to start with that were for tammy and deborah and he received two consecutive life sentences for that. He then had to come back to Connecticut to be convicted of the other murders. And on the 6th of July, 1987, he was sentenced to death. Now, in Connecticut, if at any point in your trial, somebody gives you a good character reference, stating any redeeming qualities about you, even if you're up on murder, mm. you cannot be given the death penalty. That seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Right. However, not one redeeming quality were given for Michael. So, <laughs> speaks volumes, really. So, Michael went on to spend, spend 18 years on death row, where he became a devoted Catholic. Mm. He became a mentor for other inmates. He also translated documents into, what's it called when you're blind? Is it Braille? Braille, right. So as well as financially sponsoring a child from Dominican Republic. So okay. he, was, he was this perfect person in prison. Yeah. It was bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Um, his execution actually had to be rescheduled twice before eventually taking taking place on the 13th of May, 2005, where he was killed by lethal injection. When asked if he would like to make a final statement, he didn't even open his eyes. He just simply said, no, thank you. And that, that were it. Michael was dead. Is no more. Is no more. Now, after his execution, Michael's psychiatrist, who argued at some point that he wasn't competent, received a letter, which was dated before his execution, from Michael... Which literally just read, checkmate, you never had a chance. Bit of random info. And another bit of information, his execution was the first in Connecticut since 1960. So they had not executed anybody from 1960 till 2005. And he was the first ever and the only ever one to be done by lethal injection and he is also the last inmate to be executed since it was the death penalty was removed in 2012 what in connecticut in connecticut so that is michael ross very good i was um i was really taken back that he'd killed eight women not even women they were all really young i think his old eldest victim was 22 right yeah so they were all really young as well. Youngest, 14. Yeah. Eldest, 22. And I've never heard of him. No, I've never heard of him. So there you go, Johnny. Hope it was um, worth it. Right, so one that I'm doing for this episode, <clears throat> I I listened to a podcast on it a few weeks ago and I genuinely could not believe what I was hearing. That the, takes the, a lot. <laughs> 
I was listening to it and I'm like, this fucking happened and it's fucking bonkers. I can't believe that this actually happened. So anyway, this is called the strip search scam. Okay. It's fucking bonkers. I'm, I'm intrigued. Right, so I take you to a young girl, Louise Ogborn. She's just turned 18. She's in her final months uh, at school, in senior year. She's really good at school, top 10 students. She's responsible, well-behaved, goes to church, Girl Scout. Yeah. And in April 2003, I think it may be. Well, anyway, Louise's mum loses her job. All right. Uh, she's got health issues, and Louise Ogborn um, offers to help. I'll, I'll get a job. Yeah. So in January 2004, she gets a part-time job at the local McDonald's, Mount Washington, Kentucky. Now, I've worked at McDonald's. Yeah. I worked at McDonald's for eight years, <clears throat> and I had some amazing times at McDonald's. Oh, you were Met friends for life. Brilliant friends. Had some really rough times, some shit times with customers. Yeah. But never had a bad word to say about the company itself. Yeah. The look after the... The look after the staff. The look after the staff. Yeah. Um, Louise, when she gets a job there, she's reliable. She takes extra shifts. And then one day, Friday, April 9th at 4.45, she's getting ready to go home. She's uh, worked an afternoon shift. But a manager asks her to stay a bit later because another employee is feeling sick. Right. Which happens all the time yeah. because you worked at McDonald's for a little bit, didn't you? Yeah. So she agrees. She takes another short break because she's obviously doing extra hours. Also working that shift is the assistant manager, 51-year-old Donna Summers. She's a fairly new bit of McDonald's. Uh, I think she's about eight months into her right. job with McDonald's. Laura returns from a break continues to serve customers phone rings at 4 56 p.m donna summer answered and the gentleman identifies himself as officer scott officer scott tells donna summers that he's got mcdonald's corporate on another line and the store manager on another line and he's calling because someone has had the purse stolen in store right and the culprit is one of the employees okay it describes suspect as a white female, young, petite, dark hair. So Donna Summers thinks of Louise. It fits the description. So Donna Summers goes out onto the shop floor, collects Louise and asks her to follow to the office. Yeah. The back of the store, small office. There's obviously a CCTV camera in there. <clears throat> she locked office door and explained that this police officer was on the phone uh, saying that um, someone's had the purse someone's had the purse stolen. So, obviously, young Laura's shocked. She'd never steal. Yeah, she's... She's a churchgoer. This... this Just not in her character, yeah. Uh, Donna said that this police officer had described Laura. Officer Scott was still on the phone. So, Donna Summers has switched between speaking to Officer Scott and Louise. Officer, Officer Scott has said that Louise had two choices. She had to submit to a search to find this purse here and there. Or wait for an officer to come and arrest her. They also think she's a drug dealer. And Officer Scott tells Donna Summers that they're in the process of searching her home. Right. Laura's crying and she's begging for the police station to take me to the police station. Donna Summers passes the phone to Laura and Laura speaks to Officer Scott. She agrees to be searched on the spot. Officer Scott issues instructions to Donna Summers. 
first empty our pockets, take our keys, take a phone. Officer Scott suspected the purse could be hidden underneath her clothes. Of course he fucking did. So she were ordered to undress. This isn't a real officer at all, is it, Philip? Another assistant manager, Kim Dockery, 40 years old, was replacing Donna Summers on the night shift. And she's like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Laura reluctantly stripped down to her underwear. They put her clothes in a bag with the car keys outside of the office. Kim Dockery, who was the night manager, was hugging Laura and said, if this were my daughter, I would be fucking pissed. If it were Absolutely our daughter, fucking fuming. it wouldn't happen. It's fucking disgusting. They gave her an apron to cover herself. And she's obviously in the corner of this office, yeah. petrified. Don't know what's fucking going on. Uh, restaurant's getting busy. So Kim returns to the shop floor. And Donna Summers says to Officer Scott, I need to go as well. So what Officer Scott says is, get a male employee to watch over her. So Donna Summers picks someone called Jason Bradley, a 27-year-old cook. Right, just a minute. I'm in kitchen. Mm-hmm. I'm grilling my burgers. Yeah. My manager comes to me and says, I need you to come in office because I need you to watch over a female that works with you who's been made to strip off. She's locked in his office and you're going to sit and watch. I don't want no fucking involvement in this. Well, it gets into office. She's there clutching the apron against herself. He speaks to Officer Scott on the phone. And Officer Scott asks him to remove the apron and describe her body. Jason Bradley gets pissed off. A few minutes later, he storms out and told Donna Summers, that's fucking bullshit, I want no to fucking do with it. 100 fucking percent. Now, I don't know exactly when, but she ends up completely naked with just this apron. I don't okay. know when she takes her underwear off, but she does. Right. Uh, Donna Summers, she... Gets back on the phone. By this time, Laura's been in this office 40 minutes. There's nobody else available. And Officer Scott asks if she's married. And she says, well, yeah, I've got, I've got a fiancé. So she phones her fiancé to come and look after this 18-year-old naked girl in the office while she can go serve burgers and drinks. Fuck off. Can I just... I'm not to be jumping, but... Are they all convinced that this is a real police officer? What, like, legit? I believe so. Like, who fucking knows? Who knows? But it right. gets worse. So, a fiancé yeah. comes. This one's called Walter Nix Jr., 42 years old. He's an exterminator, church-going man. Really well-known, well-liked. So at six o'clock, Donna Summer calls him, says that we've got this employee, she's been accused of theft, drugs. So she leaves Walter in the office with Laura. Laura's obviously crying. There's now this 40-year-old man in front of I've her. I've got too many questions. If I ran you from work and said, Phil, I have literally got no one else to ask, but I need you to come to my work, I need you to sit in an office in front of... How old? 18? 18 year, this 18 year old girl, who's going to be naked by the way, you need to come and look, you would tell me to go get fucked. 
it's it's just bananas the story. I I can't believe how bonkers this really is. So Walter Walter Nix speaks to Officer Scott, and Officer Scott asks Walter to remove her apron, describe her body, and then at some point she's standing on a chair and a table, so we can cavity search her. Asked to do star jumps to dislodge anything that might be inside a body. Run on the spot. What the fuck? What's going on? And bend over for a full cavity search. This poor girl. She was just at work. She was just at work doing a fucking job. Agreed to stay late because someone had found him sick. Yeah. I bet she's thinking to herself, what the fuck is going on? Now and again, she's, she spoke to Officer Scott herself. She was told to do as she was told. Um, Donna and Kim, the managers, yeah. returned. Walter told her to cover herself up when people returned, put her apron back to cover her modesty. Laura's How very fucking noble of him. Laura's obviously begging to go home. Um, by this point, she's been with this Walter an hour. It's 6.50pm. Officer Scott's demands were getting worse. Um, if Laura failed to address him as sir, or she were asking too many questions, then Walter would spank her. So when Donna and Kim came into office, she were backed into a corner. Uh, she's saying, please phone the police. You need to get the police here. Yeah, because this isn't fucking right. Um, I think... At some point, Donna and Kim returned back to work. Officer Scott carried on. I've got so... Why did no one else... Why did no one ring the police? Why did no other person in that fucking store think a police officer would not be doing this? Um, At 7.30pm, he ordered Laura to perform oral on Walter Nix. Do it or Nix would beat her. So then she was sexually assaulted. Oh, my... God. Uh, 7.52pm. Donna Summers came back on phone. She obviously came back in office. Walter Nix went home. Um, apparently when he went home, he called his mate and said, I've done something really fucking bad. You think? Mm. You fucking think? So, now Officer Scott says, well, now you need someone to replace him. <sighs> so now we've got Thomas Sims, 58-year-old maintenance worker at McDonald's. He wasn't even working that day. He was just grabbing a coffee. He took the phone. Officer Scott said, remove her apron, describe her body. Thomas Sims refused to comply. said, what the fuck is this? This ain't right. He gave her uh, clothes back. Oh, no, he ordered that her clothes be returned and the police called. Good fucking man. Um, Donna Summers called star manager who... Officer Scott had claimed to be on the other line yeah. and she had no idea what Donna were fucking talking about. <laughs> Honestly, you if you can see Carla's face. I swear. <laughs> oh. So Donna Summers begged Laura for forgiveness. Officer Scott... Do you know what you can do with your forgiveness? Shove up your ass. Officer Scott had hung up. He'd been on phone nearly three hours. That uh, poor girl. Apparently Laura asked if she still had to work tomorrow. I you... Bless her. Um, Kim Dockery told her, don't fucking worry about that. 
store manager arrived and eventually they called police at 9pm. Which is still a fucking long time. I'm disgusted at how long it's taken anybody yeah. to call the police. So, where we're talking about, is it Mount Washington? I think it is Mount Washington, Kentucky. Anyway, they had a small um, police force. Yeah. 16 officers on staff. Uh, they had one detective by the name of Buddy Stump. He went first to arrive. Obviously, CCTV camera caught everything. Yeah. They suspected it was an in-house payphone, so the person on the phone could watch and see all this fucking shit happen. Right. But couldn't find it. So... <laughs> He Google searches strip search scam and hundreds of hits come up. Fucking hell. Similar phone calls to star managers, assistant managers, always young girls, yeah. always involved in a strip search, mostly fast food chains, small towns, and this had been going on for 12 years. Fuck off. 12 years. Wow. I just picked a few. November 30th, 2000, McD's, McD's, McDonald's, Litchfield. Uh, a customer got accused of being a sex offender. Uh, this person convinced the manager to remove their clothing in order to bait the suspect to commit a sex crime. Fuck. It's fucking bonkers, isn't it? I can't. And, and promised that manager the undercover officers was in the building, so if this suspected sex offender were gonna commit a sex crime because you'd undressed her, undercover officers were there to help you. How did they get away? I don't. By 2003, there'd been 60 different incidents. As wow. time went on, they got worse. Uh, February 2003, McDonald's Georgia strip search involving a female employee and a male employee giving them a cavity search. Disgusting. It's By 2004, there have been 70 incidents across 32 states. So they put a task force together to investigate this fucking... I don't even know what you call it. I, I, I'm really fucking lost. I'm, uh, honestly... Words, I, because I can't... This is what I... When I was listening to it, I was like... Is this fucking real? This is fucking... I'm sat here thinking, how the fuck did anyone convince all them people to do these things? So, in this task force, we've got a gentleman that goes by the name of Sergeant Victor Flaherty. By the time Laura had her ordeal, mm. 17 McDonald's managers had been duped by this so-called officer. Right. Twelve of them have been charged. But obviously, no fucking leads on who this caller is. Yeah. It was described as calm, authoritative, new police jargon, new names of managers, new names of local police, and sounded fucking credible. Right. They described him as he was speaking to you, it was like he was watching you. So he knew what you were doing? Yeah. Uh, in Laura's case, someone decided to star 69, which is like a 1471 in UK where... Yeah. Yeah. And it were a non-existent phone. Um, okay, so. 
Detective Stump found out that it were a prepaid calling card from AT&T that was used, which is like an O2 or a Vodafone. Yeah. And it were traced to a phone box outside a supermarket in Panama City, Florida, 600 miles away. Now, the biggest seller of these prepaid calling cards were Walmart. Yeah. And then knocked it down to three stars. Detective Stump contacted Panama City Police, who put him in touch with Victor Flaherty, uh, the lead investigator that decided to team up. Flaherty had identified which Walmart this card had been used or purchased for another case in Boston, Um, but there were no CCTV on cash register. The CCTV on the entry and the exit, none across the register. Right. Um, two hours before Laura's ordeal, the same number, they tracked it down to another Walmart. This Walmart did have CCTV. Right. And it revealed, revealed a white male, 35, between 35 and 40, dark hair, glasses. And Detective Flaherty recognised him as he had noted that he'd seen him in the Boston Walmart Entrance. entry exit. Yeah. Uh, June 28th, Panama City officer recognised the clothing that this gentleman was wearing. It was a uniform from Bay Correctional Facility, which is a private prison. So they went to this prison warden and he identified him as 38-year-old David Stewart, who was a guard, married with five kids. Right. Detective Flaherty visited David Stewart, asked him some questions, and eventually he asked him, why do you think a detective from Massachusetts or far away would be coming to talk to you? Yeah. And he asked him, have you owned a call card? David Stewart got really distressed, and his first question was, has anyone been hurt? Right. So Detective Flaherty says, people have been hurt, People have been physically abused, yeah, mentally abused, and David Stewart says, "Amen, thank God it's over." After this, and they get back to the police station, yeah. Then he claims to know nothing, right? Gets a lawyer, uh, uses his right to remain silent. Silent, of course he does. So, police are like. What, what can we charge him with? We, we've got fucking... We need to charge him with something to yeah. keep him, don't they? Uh, they serve a warrant for his search of his address to find multiple guns, uh, loads of law enforcement magazines, yeah. and lots of uh, applications for police jobs. They found a single card, a call card, connected to nine other scam calls in 2003. We're not just talking McDonald's, we're talking Wendy's, Burger King. Yeah, yeah, like this hasn't just been McDonald's that's been targeted. Yeah. He's been doing it 12 fucking year. Yeah. Uh, his first charge was soliciting for sodomy. Yeah. He was also charged with impersonating a police officer, soliciting sex abuse and unlawful imprisonment. Stuart pleaded not guilty and he was released on bail of 100k. Right. Trial to take place end of that year. Laura Fletcher's case, Walter Nix were charged with sodomy and assault. 
even though he claimed he was a victim. How? Donna Summers ended a relationship with Walter Nix. She was suspended, then later fired. Uh, she was charged with unlawful imprisonment. Um, Kim Dockery moved stars. Laura obviously had a lot of trauma. Yeah. Panic attacks, anxiety, the lot. So Laura filed a civil lawsuit against McDonald's, who failed to warn these managers, yeah. these employees, that this were fucking going on. Yeah, because it obviously were a big thing that were happening. Yeah. It had been happening for a lot of years. McDonald's response was, Laura was mostly to blame herself because she should have realised that it wasn't a legit police officer. But she did. She was saying, bring the police here. It were every fucker else around her that failed her. Yep. Walter Nix did a deal. Uh... <sighs> Agreed to say sorry in court in October 2005. Uh, received probation. Uh, he had no criminal history. Yeah. Uh, he were going to take the Alfred plea and not be on the sex offenders. But the judge refused the plea agreement because yeah. he'd seen the CCTV. Yeah. And he said, absolutely fucking not, mate. See, this is, this is what's confusing me here, right? So, I understand how... The first five minutes of this could have been taken as legit. But any point after that, anybody that were happy to get involved, like Walter, you fucking deserve everything that you're charged with. Yep. Because to say that Walter was a ch- churchgoer, no previous history or anything like that, no criminal record. He had no fucking problem in... It had, he had no problem in... Her. Yeah, and letting her give him all set. Because somebody on a phone told him to. Mm. He's no, no, fuck off, mate. In February 2006, Walter Nix pleaded guilty uh, for a five-year deal. He was to be placed on the sex offenders list yeah. and testify at David Stewart's trial. Some uh, Donna Summers got uh, one-year probation. Laura actually backed Donna Summers yeah. and um, basically said... I can understand why she got duped. Donna Summers were obviously saying, well, why why have McDonald's not fucking told us about this? Yeah, as managers, why have we not had an email stating this scam's going about? Yeah. Uh, October 24th, 2006, it was David Stewart's trial. This was two and a half years since Laura's ordeal. Right. Uh, Donna testified, Walter testified, and Laura testified. Nobody had seen Stuart. No, he, he was just a, over it's the phone. a phone call. Yeah. Um, his defence team um, had apparently got information that Laura had said to someone that she'd get a big cheque because of this and that she was doing it for money that were part of their argument. What a shit fucking defence. Mm. October 31st, 2006, uh, they took two hours to reach the verdict. Yeah. Not guilty. What? Not guilty. David Stewart left in silence, no press, no interviews, no nothing. Funnily enough, there were no further strip scam calls and no further charges for David Stewart were filed. They had, wow. They had nothing. Yeah, but they fucking found the card that were connected to some other I, scam calls. I know, calls. but no further charges. 
That's all it says. Surely. I'm not being funny, right? But this is going on. This is this has been going on for a long fucking time. Yeah. He's hurt a lot of fucking people. And got away with it. How would a CPS not... Not a CPS... How would a jury not see that connection from that call card and know that he's responsible? Because I, I don't think that would be allowed into court because that's from a different case, maybe. Oh, it's different fucking states and stuff, yeah, isn't it? maybe. Um... <sighs> Laura, we're going to sue McDonald's for 200 million. Right. It turns out the company were aware two years before Laura's. So they'd known for two years that this were going on? Settlements have been reached out of court. Of course they fucking have. David Stewart were shouting from rooftops, I'm a victim here. I, you know, I've lost everything. Don, you. Donna Summers put in a £50 million case against McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's blamed... Everyone else Donna Summers blamed Nick's, blamed mm. Louise. Apparently their strict policy stopped in 2001. September 10th, 2007, it, it comes about that McDonald's are rolled in 16 boxes of evidence for prior hoaxes. What, what do you mean? I'll... 16 boxes of evidence. evidence. Yeah, from the CCTV. From all these other... Oh, right, yeah, so collecting yeah. all of them. And they'd been keeping them. So the believe. judge orders them to be fucking released. Released, yeah. yeah. Apparently McDonald's didn't tell staff for future law enforcement calls where they wanted them to comply. Such fucking bullshit. bullshit. So it's such bullshit. Um, Laura's obviously got traumatic stress for the rest of her life. Um, she actually did a six-hour testimony Right. when uh, they did this civil case. Yeah. Uh, Donna, Summered, Donna Summers blamed McDonald's. Laura blamed McDonald's. McDonald's had some psychologists that accused Laura of not having permanent trauma, which I just think is fucking bonkers. Bullshit. It was a four-week trial, and they found it in favour of Laura, who was awarded $6.1 million dollars. And it took them 13 hours to reach this verdict. And the reason it took them 13 hours is because they couldn't decide on how much money to give her. Some jurors wanting to give her 100 million and allegedly one juror wanting to give her one dollar. Donna Summers got awarded 1.1 million. McDonald's actually launched an appeal against this decision and it failed. The judge upheld it, but on reflection, they reduced Donna Summer's uh, payout to 500k. Right. And uh, ordered that they pay the lawyer fees for Lara, which were 2.4 million. 2.4 million lawyer fees? Yeah. Well, saying that though, it's a massive fucking company. You ain't going to be using your bog standard lawyer, are you? Let's. They actually launched a second appeal, um, but apparently they reached a undisclosed agreement with Laura and it was withdrawn and that's the end of that particular case that's quite infamous that particular case that goes alongside so many others that I didn't have a fucking clue had ever happened honestly I was just listening to it and I was like what like this actually happened I just it blew my fucking mind and you know it and got murders and but 
it's still no, but it's horrific abuse it's on somebody, up, isn't it? and it is fucked up that so many people out of that you had one guy that turned round at beginning and went fuck that don't want no to do with it and then you have the hero at the end that says give her a fucking clothes back call the fucking place yeah everyone else in between including someone's fucking husband thought it was legit and this this is all right what if our grace came home and said to us this has just happened at work. Be fucking hell on earth. I swear to fucking God. Just bonkers, I, isn't I, it? Yeah, yeah. And then when I found out that it had happened more than once. And for a fucking period of 12 years? Yeah. That's crazy. I'm genuinely fucking, like, I'm genuinely shocked. Well, you can see my face, these can't. That means I've done a good job. <laughs> you have. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. I hope you've enjoyed episode 14. I hope we've uh, give you a giggle or two. Yeah, it's good to be back and we will see you in two weeks. Please like us, Insta, as Facebook. We just need a few no- a few more numbers. Just, just a few. Just so we know you like us. Oh, we are also now over on YouTube as well. I'm not sure if I mentioned that before, which it, it's not a video. It's literally just our picture over top of our audio. Yeah, so but check it is it just out. another platform. Subscribe and all that shit. Please. She's Nick. Um, I'm not fucking begging. You are begging. (laughs) Have a really good week. The weather is supposed to continue to be beautiful. And we will see you in a fortnight. See ya. Bye.